0: Thank you all for coming out for our anniversary party today. This is our party. There's nothing afterwards, but I think it's really nice of you to be here to celebrate our anniversary. It's 40 years today. Uh, it will be, yeah. I'm excited about it. I. There were people who told us that, well, told Terry, that it would never last, it wouldn't work. Uh, they told her to stay away from me, and then there were people who came and told me to stay away from her. They told her I was a heartbreaker, which was very true. And they told me she was a heartbreaker. And that was a guy who asked her out, and she told him no. So he was a heart, she was a heartbreaker. It's kind of a weird way of thinking. But uh, uh, we've lasted 40 years. She's my best friend. Uh, we've had 40 happy years. And uh, that's a gift. That's a gift from God. And I'm just very thankful for that. And uh, I also used to think people who've been married 40 years were really, really, really old. But I also in high school thought 30-year-old teachers were really, really old. So it's all perspective. And uh, I guess we are older, but we're not really old. And now it's just like, man, it's only 10 years to our 50th. That's incredible. I remember when I, it was a goal to make it to seven because of that that old seven-year itch. I don't know if they even talk about that anymore but my goal was to make it to seven, you know, and then and then that would be a milestone, and then 15, 10 and 15 were big milestones, and then 20, and then I forgot about milestones, and now we're back to uh, 40, and I'm, I'm very thankful for what God has done. So, uh, Terry, are we doing anything today? That's right. We came to church for our 40th anniversary. We just had a nice, relaxing time that was quiet, so... Overlooked, uh, the place sits up on a hill and looking about is life under the sun, right? And we know that life under the sun is referring to this, is referring to life on the earth in a specific time period, uh, not a specific time period, but throughout the history of humanity. There was a time under the sun when Adam and Eve had a very lo- different experience than they had under the sun after the fall and there will be a time under the sun in the future uh, that we are told there will be no need of the sun, but it doesn't mean that there won't be a sun. Uh, there's, there's some debate on that, whether or not there will be a sun, but uh, there will be a time in the future uh, of life on this earth uh, when sin is gone and the, the effects of the fall are, or the fallout of the fall, are eradicated. So as Solomon writes this, he's speaking of this time between the fall of Adam and Eve and the uh, culmination of the kingdom, although he doesn't totally understand that as he writes, but that time living under the sun uh, in what um, uh, has been called the rubble of Eden. As I was preparing for this message, I had a speech come back to my mind, part of a speech. And as I was thinking about that speech, I thought, you know, there's a lot of speeches in particularly American history, uh, but some in world history that that are so important at their time, but also so well stated, situations so well stated, that we remember those speeches even today, even though they were a very long time ago. Um, one that comes to my mind quite often, I had to memorize it when I was in high school and actually then give it as a speech. We all had to memorize it and present it as a speech. But that one would be Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And most of you know how that starts. Four score. And seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. It's a famous speech that sticks in our head. Churchill's statement, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Some of you maybe actually heard recordings of Churchill saying those words. For me, I have, and I can hear his, his scratchy voice as, that, uh, as those words uh, run through my mind. Familiar to many of you is Patrick Henry's decla- declaration, which was, "Give me liberty or give me death." That one sticks with us. And um, for maybe some of you, actually, H- Henry's declaration was, "Give me my liberty or give me death." Some of you may recall John F. Kennedy's words. You might be old enough to remember his words. And and for a lot of people, it comes, it seems familiar because seems like politicians of every stripe use it in campaign speeches, uh, whether they're on uh, one political end of the spectrum or the other. But Kennedy said, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. All of those kind of came back to my mind and others as I was studying for today, because one very famous quote uh, came to my mind in this process it was a speech that was given 59 years ago this month I, was, I, I didn't realize exactly how long ago it was until I looked it up but I was two years old when it was uh, spoken it was given by a young Baptist preacher and it was given on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th in 1963. That man, his words burrowed into my soul over the years from the first time I've heard it, and um, it just continues to come back to me, uh, often unprovoked. But those words that were spoken that day was, part of it was, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And here we are almost 60 years later, and we still have problems. And we still have not achieved that dream. But I I think that there's a problem in there that not only, it's not just the problem of judging people by the color of their skin, but it's a problem of the character that resides within the people That leads to the outward problems of judging by the color of a person's skin. But I think those words, those words rush back to me as I was studying Ephesians 4. And um, Ephesians 4 is going to touch on a topic that is in many ways near and dear to our hearts today because of what was being what is happening around us in our culture. But I want us to read Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes 4, 1-6 with the thought in our mind of Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. Beginning in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor, This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. These are sad words that Solomon writes. And and again, I... Teaching through Ecclesiastes has really been hard for me. Um, not to gain your sympathy, but it just, it just, as I've said before, every chapter just weighs on me as I, as I read it at face value. And I think about what he's saying. There is just this sadness that settles into me. There is this frustration sometimes that comes out of me as he identifies what life is like under the sun post-Eden. Solomon looks out over the world of his time. There's, there's this sense from him of the mistreatment of people and nothing's being done about it. And he feels that a change needs to happen, which I want to talk about later on, that especially Solomon is the one who is thinking that a change should happen. But what what also really weighs on me as I read Ecclesiastes and think about what Solomon says is the fact that what Solomon says here in Ecclesiastes is so pertinent to what's happening around us every day. These words were written 3,000 years ago and yet they could have been taken from the headlines of the news today. Oppression and the oppressed. So I thought about Ecclesiastes 4, I I thought we live in a a culture that is deeply divided regarding who and what has been done by the oppressors, to whom and, and, and what has been done by the oppressors. In the last few years, we've seen major movements spring up like Occupy Wall Street, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matters, And while many may have serious issues with the leadership or goals of these organizations, I personally believe that an honest reflection has to admit that they all exist because of a response to those who have used their power to oppress. Whether or not that response was done correctly, whether or not the leadership of those groups um, are good leaders and just leaders whether or not uh, we agree with all of the goals or purposes of those organizations, we have to admit that there are people in this country with a lot of money, some fairly made, some unfairly made. Some of those have money because they worked hard I think of Chick-fil-A and Kathy Truett, who's dead now, but he worked hard and he treated people well and he made a lot of money. And I'm glad that he made a lot of money and I'm glad that he treated people well. And there's others like that, but there are, for every one of those, it seems like there are a whole lot of them that have money that have oppressed people. And that oppression has led to to move a movement called Occupy Wall Street. Again, whether or not you agree with where they went with it, it came it was birthed out of an oppression that existed. The Me Too movement. I could stand up here all day and talk about how women are oppressed in America. And I'm sick of it. And I've been fighting against it for a very long time. And I've been called 30 years ago a, a feminist and it was just like, I know a whole lot of feminists who would not think I'm a feminist, but just, just in the Christian culture, speaking out against how women are treated, I was called a feminist because I was calling to attention how badly we treat our women, our wives and our children. And I'm careful to even say our women. That was an old, old phrase that slipped there. and the Black Lives Matters movement, if, if if we haven't learned anything from the oppression of black people, I, it just seems like we haven't. Whether it was slavery, and whether it was uh, voting rights, uh, whether whether it is employment issues today, I mean, the reality is our youngest child's name is Talia. That was her legal name when she was born, Talia. We changed it to Leah because of the reality that exists that certain employers, if they see a name on an application that sounds like it comes from the black community, that application is set aside immediately. And there are studies to prove that. So we changed her name to Leah to give her every advantage possible. Job discrimination exists today against people who are not white. And that doesn't make, because I call that out, does not make me woke. And what I'm, I'm starting to get angry and I need to calm myself down here but I'm tired of the response that we have to what's happening in our society today by immediately trying to find the problems in their arguments or immediately trying to find the problems in their leadership or in order to deflect our own responsibility. I grew up in a racist environment and I know that word is charged today but I grew up in a, in a family where jokes about black people were common, and I'm sad to say I laughed at them and I told them myself. I grew up in a family, I grew up in a church culture where Hispanics were not valued and not wanted and blacks were not valued and were not wanted in one of the largest churches in America of its time. I grew up in a church where my brother led two black guys to the Lord through a job that he had and brought them to church and they were told to sit in the back row by the greeters. In the 1970s, that was a culture I grew up in. I grew up in a culture that when I brought our adopted kids to meet my parents, my mother, said, I can't believe you're bringing black people into our family. I went to a college where one of my best friend's fiance said, who is from Alabama, said, we have never had a black person at our dinner table and we never will. And I have tried to raise three children, one who is Hispanic and two who are black, or or, even Terry has said, why do people say they're black? Their mother was white, their father was black. Why can't they say they're white? Why do we have to make those distinctions? But the reality is they're perceived as black, and I have seen and I have heard what has been said about them in their school environments. My son being called a wetback. Repeatedly. And when we speak to the school authorities, they won't do anything about it. So if you want to tell me it doesn't exist, I tell you that you have stuck your head in the sand. And the reality is that oppression has led to these movements, and we should, as Christians, I'm not saying that we embrace the movements. What I'm saying is we should stop trying to deflect that the problem exists by pointing out the problems with the movements or the people that are, that are most widely known. I think it's important for us to note that oppression has existed from the very beginnings of human society and will come, will continue into the generations to come. There's a problem in every one of us that produces oppression. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden they were warned against an evil. When God spoke to the serpent and spoke to Eve and spoke to Adam there was an evil that he warned them against that now gripped their heart and that that early evil was a male a new tendency towards the male oppression of women. And it was revealed as God spoke to uh, to Eve and said, You will desire to control your husband, to to subvert his leadership role in the family. But he also said that Adam's response would be to rule over her. And that is not a good statement. When God says, Adam, your response will be to try and rule over her. He was not saying that because she's trying to control you, you're going to try and bring your leadership in so that everybody's happy. God was warning Adam that he would have a tendency to want to dominate and lord over her instead of lovingly lead her. And do we have a problem with husbands who want to lord and rule over their wives? Do we have a problem with men who want to oppress women by dominating them. We can look back in every society since the fall and see that women have been used and oppressed by men. We as Americans like to stand back in our Western mindset and point fingers at the Taliban and they make their wives dress a certain way. And they refuse education to women and they treat them like property. And yet, I would say to you that women in America are paid less for the same job. They do the same work and they get paid less for it because they're women. And we live in a society where women are objectified by men who lust after their bodies. So do we see women any better than the Taliban do? And I would argue no. There was a article I read yesterday on refereeing in the NCAA. And uh, it wasn't a woke piece, it was just a report that Um, across NCAA basketball, men's basketball referees get paid more than women's basketball referees get paid. The lowest differentiation varies by league, but the lowest differentiation is 33%. Men get paid to referee basketball games 33% more than women get paid to referee basketball games. The highest is almost 50% that women are making half as much as the men are making to do the same thing with the same rules. The only place that that doesn't exist is in the Ivy League schools. So if you want to criticize Ivy League schools, at least they've got that one right. As I think back on my own education, I was raised in a, in a place that I'm very thankful for in the sense it had a lot of racist stuff going on, but uh, I'm thankful for other things of Christian values that I was taught, and I'm thankful for the history of our country that I was taught. But as I reflect back on what I was taught, we had to memorize the Declaration of Independence. And there's an incredible statement in the Declaration of Independence that everyone points to that states that all men are created equal. And yet the man who penned those words, and before you shut me down as woke, I'm I'm not saying we need to go back and do reparations or anything else. I just want you to be aware, if you didn't know this, the man who wrote the words that all men are created equal was a slave owner. produced children by raping his female slaves. And I'm not saying that Thomas Jefferson did not believe that all men are created equal. I think he did. The problem was in his definition of people. Thomas Jefferson lived in an era when people who were black were considered subhuman because they did not have slaves, they did not have souls. They recognized them as very similar to humans, but they were subhuman because of a lack of a soul. Therefore, even in Christian churches during that time, in the North and the South, the gospel was not shared with black people because they could not be saved. Our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, our own denomination was formed because Baptist slave owners would not give up their slaves. At one time, there was one Baptist denomination in America. It split in the 1800s, shortly before the Civil War. because the southern slave owners did not want to give up their slaves, who were Baptists. And sadly today, it is also our denomination which has been revealed to have covered up the actions of over 700 sexual predators in the last 20 years. It isn't just that sexual abuse took place in our churches by pastors and Sunday school teachers and deacons. It's not 700 victims. We're talking 700 predators who were covered up and they knew who they were and they wouldn't release their names. And they went from church to church to church and prayed on women, teenagers, and young children. All under the cover of local church autonomy. And we are Baptists and we believe in local church autonomy, which is a total joke because we will take action if a pastor marries same-sex couple or says homosexuality is okay. We will let go of autonomy and vote them out of our convention. But when it came to someone who raped a child, all of a sudden Baptist autonomy was a a sacred doctrine that could not be touched. has existed in every culture that has ever existed. And I find it ironic that the guy who's writing these words, the guy who says... I have saw all the oppressions that are under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them and I thought that those who were dead already were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And the man who wrote those words is King Solomon. King Solomon... Who had a thousand wives? I think it's a nice round number. Could have been a little bit more, could have been a little bit less. He had a thousand women, 700 wives that he had married for political advantage. Women who probably had other dreams in their lives than being married to King Solomon. And 300 concubines, women that were his property to satisfy his lust women who probably had other dreams in their lives, than to be his toy kept in a room for the rest of their life. This was the man who charged enormous taxes on his people to fund his own extravagant lifestyle. And he's writing. He's writing about the oppression that he sees and the tears of the oppressed and no one is there to comfort them. Sometimes we have a tendency to be a little bit blind. I could spend more time this morning talking about things like the evil of human trafficking, the sexual and physical abuse of children, the scourge of domestic abuse along with many other forms of oppression but i think the point i'm trying to be make trying to make has been made Opposition, uh, oppression exists it is an evil in our world and it is pervasive in the human race and i think think at this point we should move to consider why oppression exists so widely and so continuously. I mentioned earlier Adam and Eve, and I want to press into that a little bit more. I think as we remember their story of eating the fruit and how the rebellion of their heart flourished, Adam and Eve became both the oppressed and the oppressor. In truth, while they thought that what Satan told them or presented to them of self-determination and ultimate power to be like God. In truth, it brought them to the bondage of sin, a sin nature and life in the family of Satan. Jesus in his time looks at the Pharisees and says, you're a brood of vipers. And his idea was not that you're like snakes. His idea was "You, you live in the family of Satan, you're his offspring. A brood of vipers is is like a den of, of lion, like a, uh, uh, a den of lions, or a group of animals that band together, and they're a family-connected unit to some degree or another. And 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 with snakes, they will find a place to reproduce, and that is their that is where the brood lives. And he calls them a brood of vipers. You're like the serpent. He's comparing them to Satan and he says, you are tied as family members to Satan. You dwell with him. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve. They did not achieve a free will. No one has a free will. You make choices, but no one has a free will. Your will is either bound by sin or your will is being moved by the Spirit. Adam and Eve did not achieve a free will, but they achieved a will enslaved to sin driven by self-destructive cravings and the deadly pursuit of Satan's agenda. The Apostle Paul tells us this when he writes to the Ephesians church and says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Adam and Eve, Adam became the father of a race of people, tied together, not only by human genetics, but tied together by sin, by a sin nature and a pursuit of Satan's agenda. And Satan is the great oppressor. And those who are his offspring pursue his agenda, which is oppression, and that's why oppression exists and why we pursue it. And all I want to bring this down to this morning is that not only may we have been oppressed, and we all have been oppressed, at least by Satan, but in many ways we unwittingly oppress others when we seek to gain an advantage over them for what we want, or we seek to use them for what we want. Knowing that we are all offspring of Satan by birth and we pursue Satan's agenda, the reality is that our world is filled with billions of oppressors. Billions of oppressors. And most of them probably are unknowingly seeking to advance the oppressive agenda of the great oppressor all while being oppressed themselves. So I would say that when Solomon, under the influence of the leading of the Holy Spirit writes about oppression and writes about the tears of the oppressed, he's saying far more than he realizes. It's a global problem because of the great oppressor and the oppression then that we put on others. And that reality for me raises an important question. If that is our natural state, is there any hope that oppression can cease? as we look around our culture and as i said earlier i was becoming angered by the things that i was saying as i as i as i think about the jokes that i have told and as i think about how i the things that i have said to the face of people who were not white and when I think about how I treated some of them and how I treated even white people, I mean, you want to talk about bullying, I was a bully. I mean, I, I, what I hear as bullying today, sometimes I'm just like, oh you understand bullying. Me and a couple other guys, after school one day, just for fun, went and grabbed a kid randomly took him in the bathroom and shoved his head in the toilet and flushed the toilet, just shoved his whole head under the water in the toilet when they had back before we were saving water and there was a lot of water in the toilets. It was not uncommon for us to do. A few of us went on a choir tour for our Christian school and we were in San Francisco. Three of us went out because we were allowed to go out that afternoon. Three of us went out and would look for what we were identifying as gay men. And we would, one of us would lure them over and then the three of us would beat them up. That's who I was. And I don't say that because I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed of it. So is there any hope that oppression can cease? Yes. And I think that I'm an example of how oppression can begin to cease. It can cease because the gospel of Jesus changes people. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the biblical statement that when a person is in Christ united with Jesus by faith in his blood sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. The Bible tells us that person is a new creation. That person is given a new nature that desires the things of Christ as the Holy Spirit transforms them into the image of Jesus. There's hope that a bully can become gentle. This hope that a racist can love black people or anyone of any color from any nation. And the Holy Spirit enters into that person. That person is given a new nature that desires the things of Christ as... A, as they are transformed into the image of Jesus. But it's not a process that's instantaneous. And thus Paul says elsewhere that we are being changed from glory to glory. And the reality is that until that process is fully complete, either when we die or when Jesus returns, our bodies still battle with the sin that is present around us, And that appeals to our human nature. And so is it possible then, the question I would ask, is it possible for Christians to be oppressors? Yes, it is. It's possible for us to be oppressors when we do not pursue becoming like Jesus and instead choose to pursue power and lust and status What the Apostle John, in his first letter, calls the cravings of the flesh the cravings of the eyes and finding our identity in the people who praise us and what we possess. All those things are not of the Father. They're of the world. Have you ever noticed that everyday likable people given a little bit of power all of a sudden are not everyday likable people? It's because there's that part of us that craves to be able to brag and find our identity in power and praise and what we possess and what we've accomplished. So, is it possible for Christians to be oppressors? Yeah. So that if it's possible for Christians to be oppressors, what's the answer to our problem with oppression? I have three things that I would present and I would say this as well. There is a whole lot of information, there is a whole lot of thought, there is a whole lot of philosophy in my little head that has been distilled down to the bare essentials for this message today. I've thought long and hard about this. So I'm I'm giving you what I believe are very basic things here this morning, and I think there's a lot more that you can think about on your own. But I would argue that where we as Christians need to begin is with the need to understand where we struggle with the cravings of the flesh, the cravings of the eyes, and finding our identity in the people who praise us and what we possess. I was reading something recently. I can't tell you what the book was. I can't tell you what the person was they were talking about or where he taught but he taught at a seminary and they were talking about him uh, and he's from another generation back, whoever it was. It may have been J.I. Packer, but I'm not positive. But he would tell his seminarians, those students, who seminary is equivalent to where you earn your master's or your doctorate degrees. So these are guys that are Uh, and some women who have made it through a certain level of education and are entering final preparation, so to speak, for either pastoring or becoming educators themselves in Christian schools. And he told them that the most important thing that they needed to do during their time in seminary was to identify the specific sins that they struggle with the most. And if they did not identify that before they went out, those specific sins would destroy them. They needed to figure out, identify through the help of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, those particular sins that they struggled with. And all of us have them. There are sins that are common to all of us. There are certain sins for all of us that in our particular situation are more difficult and more persistent than others. And I think in this area of oppression, we need to spend a lot of time as Christians figuring out in cravings of the flesh, cravings of the eyes, or wrong identity foundations where we struggle. And I would say that in another way, we need to identify the sins which lead us to have a propensity to oppress others. Through those three areas, cravings of the flesh, cravings of the eyes, and boasting in who we are and what we have, finding our identity in that, we're going, those sins are going to lead us to oppress others in one way or another. And that's not going to happen through navel-gazing exercises. It's not going to happen through sitting around singing kumbaya with other people and, and having some kind of a racial reconciliation conference. It's not going to come through that. It's going to come through us as individuals reading our Bibles, meditating on what the Bible says, asking the Holy Spirit to teach us from God's Word. And especially, I think, comparing how we treat and view people with how Jesus viewed and treated people. We need to consider how He gravitated to the outcasts of society and had compassion for them. We need to be honest about our sins of self-superiority and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to view those around us with compassion. We will... Well, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, so I'm just going to back off on what I was about to say. But the, the problem to oppression does not begin to be, to be solved with conferences or big movements or political agendas or laws that are passed, it has to begin in us as individuals. I as a person need to change. Second, I would argue that you will never care about the oppressed as you should until you spend time with them. You will never care about the oppressed as you should until you spend time with them. I think it's really interesting here with Solomon. I mean, I, I would expect i would expect what he would write, I, I would expect he wouldn't even talk about this topic. I mean, it's just like, what, what platform do you have, Solomon, to even talk about oppression? And you didn't do anything to solve it. but I, I would expect it to be just talking about the oppressions that exist. And Solomon actually moves it past the, to the oppressions that exist and twice makes this statement the tears of, about the tears of the oppressed and the oppressed that they had no one to comfort them. After he talks about the people in power, who have power and they could oppress, he says again, there was no one to comfort them. That, that's what just slays me. He is the king. I just thought, wouldn't it have been amazing if Solomon, as the king who had created so much oppression, would have stepped down off of his massive ivory gold-covered throne and walked down the gold, solid gold steps and out into the city to the people who are oppressed and sat down with them and said, How can I how can I help? How can what changes can I make? What can we do? But I, I figure that he justified it just like we have a tendency to justify it. I'm thankful that Jesus stepped down from the courts of heaven to come to this earth and walk in our bodies and in our lives in poverty with the oppressed people from Galilee who were considered to be worthless because that region was the worthless region and he came to the people of Israel with a Galilean accent with his Galilean friends to sit with a woman of the street and talk to her about the Gospel to the point that she comes back into a room full of better than everybody's with Simon the Pharisee and falls down at his feet and wipes his feet with her, with her hair mixed with her tears and defends her when Simon slanders her and slanders him. Sometimes I wonder if we live in such an intensely divided society today because it is easier to demonize others and make negative assumptions about them than it is to develop compassionate relationships with those who disagree or who have different perspectives. It's easier to write them off and shove them to the side because they have wrong ideas. we We live in an environment today where there are loud voices all around us literally shouting, shouting their views. Whether it's in the media, or it's in protests, or it is in meetings, people are shouting their views. You have, and and we like to think it's the unsaved people who are acting that way, but there are people who are being anything but gentle and lowly who are calling themselves Christians and spewing stuff just like an unbeliever would be expected to do. And people right away, when I say that, they want to immediately go to, well, Jesus, look at him when he went into the temple. Look at what he did when he went into the temple. Yeah, he went into the temple and blew up. Because those people were were oppressors he went after the oppressors well they're oppressors so so we as christians we need to speak out that way i want to remind you that while jesus did that he did it in righteous anger as a fulfillment of prophecy prophecy and in three and a half years of ministry did it twice very briefly and was done and walked away I don't think that we should base our approach with other people that we disagree with mostly on what Jesus did in the temple. Because it was rare for him. And I don't think we're doing it in righteous anger. Maybe I'm really wrong and I'm being judgmental, but I just don't think we are. But those loud voices are shouting and they're calling us to to their side and to denounce the actions of those other people. And the problem in my mind is that in between those loud voices are a whole lot of people who are really confused. And they're trying to figure out a way out of this. And they're oppressed. And there is no one to comfort them. Because the people who have the comfort... Are going over and joining sides with loud voices on both sides. Until we spend time with the oppressed, and we listen to their stories, and we learn to love them, we cannot be people who offer genuine. And I'm just going to say. I struggle with this myself, it is costly and it is draining and some of them just want to argue and they don't want to, they don't want any kind of, of answer except give me, because they're struggling with cravings of the flesh and cravings of the eyes and finding their identity and what they are and have. And it's messy. Most of you know our adoption story. It is messy. And I have not done well in the middle of that messiness. I have found out my own problems as a father, and I have found out my own problems with compassion. And it's really hard in the middle of getting beat up by your kid. To have a heart of compassion because of how that kid was abused. It is hard when they are kicking you to the point that they fracture your spine. It is hard to have compassion in that moment. But don't tell me it's too hard. What if Jesus had said to the father, it's too hard. Those people. I would say there was a reason that the outcast and the condemned and the oppressed flocked to Jesus. They found comfort in the genuineness of his love and the forgiveness that he offered as he spent time with them. Lastly, and I think this is closely connected to what I just said, but there's a nuance here that I believe we often miss in our thinking. David Gibson wrote a Bible study on Ecclesiastes, and it's, it's really good. But in his Bible study on this passage, he made this statement. The Christian faith says that you never solve injustice without changing the heart of the oppressor. You never change injustice without changing the heart of the oppressor. The nuance here that I want you to catch is that the comfort we offer is rooted in the fact that oppression declines where the gospel transformation advances. Oppression declines where the gospel transformation advances. So that means that the answer to the evil of oppression is not ultimately found in laws or leadership changes. We'll go on here in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon's going to argue over and over again that putting in new leadership does not change the problems. Because new leadership gets power and they use that power for themselves. Instead, the answer to this ongoing evil in our world is found in the Holy Spirit's work in the human being. Can you tell me why I adopted three children of minority status considering my background and how I was raised? Can you explain that to me? Why would I do that? And the only answer that I can find is because of the Holy Spirit's work in this human being. And the only way that the gospel is going to advance and gospel transformation is going to advance is through us developing relationships for the telling of the gospel story. One-on-one. Not just donating money to organizations that offer help to the oppressed or trying to get the oppressed to attend church. It's going to change and it's going to help through one-to-one, long-term, gospel-infused relationships for God's glory and others' good. And there are plenty of organizations in this city that you can get involved with that will offer opportunities for one-to-one establishing, the establishment of one-to-one relationships for the gospel. Bridge Haven. Hope House. Willis-Dadee. Melissa came across one that I'd heard of this past week, Central uh, Furniture Rescue. And there's others. I could list them. But it means giving time to develop relationships with people who are oppressed for the purpose of them coming to know Christ and for the purpose of doing what Solomon says is an evil in this world, that there's no one to comfort them. If we are going to be like Jesus, Jesus came to comfort through the gospel. I, I find it interesting, this, this verse here, I find it interesting that one of the last things that Jesus says to his disciples, do you remember the things he said to them the night before he died? I'm going away. Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going away for a purpose. And then he tells them again, I'm going away. And what does he promise them when he says, I'm going away? I will not leave you here like orphans. I will send what? Who? What does he call him? I will send the Comforter. Jesus' heart is for people to know him and in knowing him find comfort. So What's the dream? Martin Luther King's statement is an incredible statement. It's it's a statement of looking past the color of someone's skin or whatever you want to put in that category, and and seeing them as valuable. And, And now it's I know I know I know that that there are groups that are now saying no, you've got to recognize my blackness and you can't be colorblind. And that's not. And, and you feel like whiplash because you just got to the point of being colorblind and whiplash is now taking you back the other direction. So what do we do? You see them as human beings. You go and be with them. You go to comfort them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I can look back over the years of my life in areas where I have great regret. And as I reflect on actions that bring me great sadness, I thank you through the Holy Spirit's work that I am not the man I was. I also acknowledge that at 61 on August 7th of 2022 I am not the man that I am to be either. There is so much that needs to change. And there's so much that needs to change, not just in me, but in, in all of us, Father, in our convention, and in, at Northbrook. Because we are just not yet like Jesus. We thank you that one day we know we will be like him because we will see Him as He is. In the meantime, Father, help us to recognize where we need to change. Help us to reflect on how, how great was the love that You lavished upon us, and help us to be people who learn to love others, that we don't expect them to become like us in our culture and in our dress, And in our holidays, God, help us to change from trying to make people into good Americans to help us to understand that you have us here to help people to hear the gospel and to become Christ-like and obedient citizens of your kingdom. God, i pray that you would use these thoughts in our in our minds and in our hearts today help us to think how you would have us think through the power of the holy spirit and i ask this in your son's name amen, amen.